The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Um, so today's scripture reading is coming from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12. Um, so if you can, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Thank you. All right. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We praise you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Lord, we pray this morning that you would be comforting Ryan Brown after the loss of his father. We pray um, also that you would comfort his stepmom, Valerie, and his brother, Steve. Lord, we ask that, uh, that in light of these events, that um, they would be looking to you, that your word would be a balm for their souls. Lord, we also ask that you would comfort our sister, Jay, who's recovering from her knee surgery. We thank you that it was successful. We ask now that you would help her to navigate the pain, help her as she starts um, physical therapy this week. We ask that that would be a straightforward process and that in the midst of the pain and the hardship, she would, um, she would have sweet times with you, that there'd be some perspective there, um, that you would be her comforter even in the midst of that physical challenge. Lord, we also want to remember this morning our friends Dylan and Sandy, who we met last month as they're preparing to go serve and and help establish the church in Central Asia. So God, in your perfect timing, we ask that they'd be able to sell their home in Chicago and that they'd have a really effective season of training. You'd prepare them well for all the challenges that are ahead. And God, we know that the Super Bowl is going on today and there's some beautiful things that, uh, that come with that, uh, time with family and friends, and just the glory of athletes accomplishing great feats as you created them to do. But we also know that there's a lot of evil that happens this time of year. Heightened alcohol abuse, drunken fights, addiction to gambling, the objectification of people, materialism on steroids. So God, we ask that you would protect our hearts and our minds and that you would keep us loving the things that you love. 
and hating the things that you hate. So do that work even now as we look at your holy words together. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So today we begin our journey through probably the single most influential spoken communication ever given in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. And it takes up all of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. You know, over the centuries, these words of Jesus have influenced philosophers, artists, revolutionaries of different types. Martin Luther King Jr. certainly relied heavily on the Sermon on the Mount. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whom I quoted last week, he once said, I would only achieve true inner clarity and honesty by really starting to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. Here alone lies the force that can blow all this hocus-pocus of Nazism sky high like fireworks, leaving only a few burnt-out shells behind. Well, while the, the words of these chapters are well-known and have been influential on a societal level, our concern today is to receive them for our own hearts, to let them transform our lives and our life together, to eagerly receive all that our master has said and to live it out as his disciples. Now, if you haven't noticed yet, Matthew is very keen to show us connections between the Old Testament and Jesus, the one to whom all the Old Testament writings were pointing. So I like to show you those as well so that we can remember that this whole book is one cohesive story with one main character at the center of it all. So in this Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see that continuity with the Old Testament in at least three ways. First, Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom, the embodiment of wisdom. His Beatitudes, these sayings that we're going to look at today, they reflect a number of the Psalms in declaring what type of person is blessed. And Jesus' counsel, especially in uh, chapter 6, sounds a lot like the fatherly voice in the book of Proverbs. And then at the end of chapter 7, it seems to echo the voice of Lady Wisdom, warning of two paths, inviting listeners to carefully choose between two houses. So after taking in the wisdom of this Sermon on the Mount, it won't surprise us later in Matthew when Jesus says about his own actions, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Or when he tells the scribes and the Pharisees, someone greater than Solomon is here. So look for Jesus as the embodiment of wisdom in these chapters. Secondly, as we've been seeing really since the start of Matthew, Jesus is the true king. Now, it was prescribed in Deuteronomy for Israel's kings to daily read the law and to keep its words. And this devotion to the Torah was modeled by good kings like David and Hezekiah and Josiah. Well, Jesus shows here that not only has he been meditating on Torah, but he has thoroughly internalized it. And he's ready to rule in a way that holds forth that good law to the people. So one scholar has said that the Sermon on the Mount is the king's speech. He is the new king fulfilling the demands of the law by instructing the people on how to imitate him and live in harmony with the law. So look for that authority of the king to shine out through these chapters. And you can even think about the life that's being described in these chapters as a portrait of what it means to live as a citizen in Jesus' kingdom. 
Well, thirdly, in chapters two through four, we saw several connection points with the life of Moses. And those portrayals of Jesus as a greater Moses are gonna continue here as well. The words in uh, verse one, he went up on the mountain. That may seem fairly straightforward, but those are actually taken exactly from the Greek version of Exodus, where they're used to describe Moses four times. And that phrase appears nowhere else in the Old Testament. So just those four times. Notice also how Matthew uses the definite article here. He says, the mountain. Jesus went up the mountain instead of he went up on a mountain. But what mountain is he talking about? No mountain had been mentioned before this. So it suggests the mountain par excellence, the mountain that invites a comparison with Sinai. So for the original Jewish audience, when they hear these words, he went up on the mountain to teach immediately they would, their minds would go to Moses' words in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord said to me, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Jesus, with divine authority as our eternal prophet and wise king, he sits down on the mountain. It says, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Notice that he saw the crowds, and so he goes up on the mountain and begins to teach, not to the crowds directly, but to his disciples who are gathered right there. The Sermon on the Mount is first and foremost for the disciples of Jesus, those who are devoted to him in a rabbi-student relationship, those who will follow him anywhere, who trust him, who are committed to obey him. Now, the crowds are apparently gathered around to listen also. That's, that's great. That's good. Many of them may come to follow Jesus as well. The Spirit of God does this all the time. He draws people in through the words of Jesus. But many others in the crowd will just hear some interesting maxims that they may repeat or put into service. They may quote Jesus like someone may quote a TED Talk, but it won't change their lives. Well, I want to exhort you, church family, if you belong to Christ today, then listen to the Sermon on the Mount in these coming weeks as a disciple ought to. Not just as someone in the crowd. Listen intently, eagerly, obediently, prayerfully. Because these words aren't here just to inform you or just to make you see things a little differently. They're here to turn your world upside down and to cause you to live in wisdom and purity, to live as a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And another way of saying that is that these words will cause you to live the good life the good life. You've heard the Beatitudes before, likely, and that's a danger for us. They're, they're over-familiarity. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that word blessed, take it out of your vocabulary. It's, it's taken on a too otherworldly connotation. We feel like it, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't feel real for our lives. It's a churchy word. So here's what I want you to think instead. Happy are the poor in spirit. Fortunate are those who mourn. Flourishing are the meek, etc. In other words, these are literally the best possible conditions that could happen to you. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this is the sort of man who is to be congratulated. This is the sort of man to be envied, for he alone is truly happy. What I want you to see is that in these statements, Jesus is turning the expectations of the world upside down. His kingdom is at hand, and it displaces the kingdom of this world, and so as king of the truer realm, he's pulling back the curtain of time and of superficial appearances to show us which characteristics mark the truly happy life, to show us who are the truly fortunate ones. So as we go along, I'm going to be substituting out the word blessed just to jar you a bit and, and make you think about what this really means. It's about those, of, those who will enjoy favor from God, those who will be happy or favored or flourishing or fortunate. It will be good for you. So these statements are shocking because they're a reversal of what comes naturally and what's commended and respected and applauded on the streets of this world. They all represent a type of weakness in the eyes of the world. But as we go along, I think you'll see that if you possess these qualities, you are actually anything but weak. Verse 3 starts out, How good is life for the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does poor in spirit mean? Well, it doesn't mean boring people who don't naturally have much spunk. It's not speaking about personality at all. It's saying that in this person, the inner self has somehow been laid low. It means you've been emptied or humbled. You acknowledge your own spiritual bankruptcy. You know your unworthiness before God and your total dependence upon him. And, it, and not just in a way that's like, oh yeah, I, I, I need God. No, for you, these aren't hypotheticals. They are facts of which you have become utterly convinced. The poor in spirit. This quality is offensive to the world around us because it means that there's a lack of self-promotion or self-reliance. And that's opposite to the thinking of our culture. You know, probably the number one phrase that's been taught to children over the last 40 years has been, believe in yourself. Self is where all the answers are to be found. Look within. Dream your dreams. Find the resources within yourself. But the poor in spirit have come to say, I can't. And I'm not going to try to any longer. The poor in spirit have lifted their eyes off of themselves and they confess their own smallness. And note the reward here. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that this kingdom that he came to usher in, its citizens are the poor in spirit. And note the verb. It's not theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. It's theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Already, right now. And the same is true on the opposite bookend of the Beatitudes in verse 10. You can see it's repeated. Theirs is right now the kingdom of heaven. So this isn't talking about going to heaven one day. This is talking about experiencing and belonging to the realities of heaven even now. Well, next comes, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning we normally associate with grieving the loss of someone who's died. And that definitely could fit within this category of what we're talking about, but it's also broader than that. Because any sort of loss 
or suffering or state of things being wrong can be mourned. And those who aren't afraid to mourn display great love because grief is the price we pay for loving. But celebrating mourning, hmm, that that sounds almost nonsensical to us, right? Like, how can you be happy or fortunate if you're mourning? The very definition of mourning is that you're not happy, right? For now. But the reward promised for the mourners here is for the future. They shall be comforted. They're weeping now, but because of their willingness to go there emotionally, they won't be weeping later. You see, the world avoids mourning, and so it just kicks it down the road. The world always tries to put a smile on, to look at the silver lining, to not actually grieve the evil, the pain, the loss. If a loved one dies or they suffer some other kind of grievous loss, the person unwilling to mourn will simply distract themselves, numb the pain, devote ourselves to pleasure. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Maybe become addicted to work or to substances or to screen time, meaningless activities, anything to keep us from having to think about what hurts, what's been lost, what's sick and disordered. Well, Christ is saying that that's not the way of his people. They are willing to stare reality in the face and sit there and cry and wait. And here's the crux of it all. If you're willing to really stare reality in the face and digest all of the brokenness, what are you going to see? Well, you're going to see and you're going to mourn your own sins as well. You're going to be grieved by how your actions and attitudes have hurt the people around you. You're going to see how messed up things are because of the wrong priorities you've had and all the fake things you've worshipped. And like David in Psalm 51, you're going to see how you have personally spat in God's face. And you will mourn. And in that mourning, that heart posture of grieving sin, your sin, the sin of others, the brokenness of this world, in that posture, you'll receive a promise. Comfort is coming. Instead of needing to frantically numb or distract or entertain yourself, you can get back to life because you have a sure hope. Comfort is coming. Now, before we move on, I want to make clear that we're not talking about seven or eight different types of people in these Beatitudes. Now, sure, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven may express one or more of these more brightly than the others, but just like the fruit of the Spirit, you either have them or you don't because they're all connected. The Beatitudes are describing one type of person, the one who walks in the footsteps of Christ, the one who lives under his reign, And so there's overlap here. Like the the person who's willing to mourn over sin and suffering, they're certainly experiencing a a poverty of spirit. And a person who's poor in spirit, they're not going to assert themselves in a pushy or controlling way because they will be meek. Verse 5, how fortunate are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meek is not a word that we apply to other people very much, at least in this century. It kind of makes me think of like a shy mouse, but that's not right at all. (laughs) None of these are talking about personality traits. Meekness is, it's also not talking about being a pushover, right? It's not talking about those people 
who will just compromise anything to make the trouble go away. No, a meek person can be strong. Actually, a meek person must be strong. Because while other people demand to fight and grab and exert themselves, the meek person is unfazed. He or she doesn't need to defend what's rightfully theirs. They're unassuming, unpretentious, gentle, self-controlled. They're not vengeful or manipulative. There's a big picture focus there that enables the meek person to not make demands. Also not be sensitive about himself or or easily threatened or given to self-pity. The meek person is finished with, with being infatuated with themselves and their own story. They've, they've already been brought low, and so they've come to realize that, you know, I, I can't really be harmed by other people. John Bunyan put it this way, he that is down need fear no fall. He that is already down doesn't need to be afraid of falling. And the reward here for being meek is astonishing. They shall inherit the earth. Maybe the Apostle Paul was thinking of this promise when he wrote that he lived as one having nothing, yet possessing all things. And it's, just, it's, it's not just heaven that's promised or some, I mean, that would be amazing, right? Like heaven is promised, but it's not only heaven or some vast mystical space of inner being that the, the meek will gain. Jesus is quite literally sharing his rule over a new creation. So it's the meek, not the strong, not the aggressive, not the harsh or the cunning who will inherit the earth. Verse six, how flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now it's been said that hunger and thirst are kind of dead metaphors for a land like America where I mean, it's so prosperous. How many of us have, have ever truly been hungry, truly been thirsty to the point where we seriously worried about our own survival? Now, if you have, then you know the desperation that accompanies that feeling. But what these people are desperate for, what they simply must obtain, what they feel like they're going to die if they don't get it, is righteousness. There's a desperation to see it around them, as Christ's kingdom becomes manifest, but first we, we hunger and we thirst for this righteousness to, to be in our own thoughts and deeds right now. So this desperate desire for righteousness means that God's commands are never burdensome for us. We see them for what they really are, that they're the doorway to freedom and joy. So let's stop here and just appreciate the structure of this Beatitudes list. The first four are essentially qualities that look weak to the world, you know, qualities that involve some sort of suffering or bearing up under. It's generally not considered good to be any kind of poor or to be in a situation where you're mourning or, or to be meek or to have a nagging hunger or thirst. Those, those seem like undesirable things, but... But these blessed states of wanting actually end up, they drive toward the promise of verse six, these people shall be satisfied. And if you're satisfied, those who started out empty, they've been filled up by the good things of God, then that means that now they're full. And if you're full, then you're in a position to give. And so in the following verses, we see that they give mercy 
They exude purity. They make peace. They absorb persecution. So the first half seems to show the people of Jesus as they exist in their vulnerability. And then the second half seems to show them as they shine in their interactions with the world out of that fullness that God has given them. Verse 7 says, Happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Equality is mercy, and the reward is mercy. In Psalm 18.25, it also says, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. Now, mercy could be defined, you could define it as a sense of pity, but also the desire to relieve suffering, and then that bending of the heart toward the hurting person, and actual action for their benefit, for healing of any kind, that's mercy. The quintessential picture of this is probably the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Well, I want to ask, what what prevents us from showing mercy? If it's mercy towards someone who's suffering, it's usually our desire for comfort that gets in the way. It's really, really easy to convince ourselves that they'll, they'll get help some other way. Or what if it's mercy towards someone who has done wrong? You know, sometimes we think things like, sure, I'm inclined to mercy. I'm a merciful person. Just as soon as that person shows a little remorse or, or even the desire for forgiveness. But no, it, it doesn't work that way. A merciful person feels sorry for the bitter person, the angry person, the person who is being stupid in their animosity. And you're naturally inclined to think, man, this person just needs to get crushed to teach them a lesson. Maybe, but not by you. Show mercy now before they deserve it. Verse 8 could be translated, favored are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, we might think no explanation needed here, right? Pure in heart, that means that I think about what's pure and I keep out all the bad stuff, right? Well, that's not wrong, but also let me suggest uh, a way of looking at it that might be even a, a bit more helpful. In 1846, Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard published a work entitled Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. The one thing that he was describing was the desire for God himself. So if someone could want this and this alone, Kierkegaard, he argued, well then that heart would be pure. So the real question isn't if you want God, which hopefully most people in this room would affirm that they do, but rather the question is whether you want God and God alone. Two passages that get after this concept. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Isn't that interesting? James sees the opposite of clean hands and a pure heart to be a double mind a mind that is pursuing two things at the same time. And then Psalm 86.11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So how can I walk in God's way, in God's truth? I need a heart that is united, that is one, not, not a double heart or triple or quadruple heart. So unite my heart to fear your name. 
Take away my double mind so that I can have a pure heart. So what does it look like when my heart isn't pure? When it's not united? When it doesn't will one thing? Well, it's not necessarily that I'm visiting adult stores or having violent thoughts or listening to obscene lyrics or or something. No, my, my life could look very put together and even sanitized in a way. But what do I want? I want God and I want family. I want God and I want a fulfilling job. I want God and I want people to think of me as someone who has a pure heart. I want God and I want relative freedom from suffering. I want God and something else, anything else, even good things. But if my heart is divided, it's not pure. The pure heart wants only God and everything else flows out of that desire. So my wife leaves me, I still want God. I get cancer, I want God. I lose my job, declare bankruptcy, I want more of God. I undergo character assassination, that hurts, but I'll be fine because all I really wanted was God. And it's promised that I will see him. Yes, I will see him face to face on that day, but also I will perceive him more clearly and beautifully even now with the eyes of my purified heart. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We live in a world that's fraught with conflict, nations fighting over resources and centuries-old grudge matches, violence on the streets, people acting rabid about politics, Co-workers trying to best each other through passive aggression, families fighting, spouses fighting, even us fighting ourselves and what we know to be best, but we choose instead to sabotage our own happiness because we have no peace within ourselves. And behind all of this tension and different types of violence lies a cosmic warfare with powers of darkness that are stirring up and blinding a rebellious humanity against that which is truly good. And in that state, we do not make peace. We create unnecessary disagreements all the time for the sake of our own egos. But Jesus' followers must and will be different. The blessing in this beatitude belongs not to peaceful people, not to peaceable people, but to peacemakers. Do we understand the difference there? It's one thing not to get drawn into a fight or to be a person who just tries to calm everyone down. It's another thing to make peace. It's one thing to, to, uh, to settle people down into a fake peace, but it's another thing to sometimes push through necessary conflict to achieve true peace. Peacemakers go into the fray. They put themselves at risk, and only people who are at peace within themselves can ever have the wherewithal to do this. The ultimate example, of course, being Christ himself, who brought about peace by taking on the destructive guardians of fake peace and ultimately absorbing their violence against himself on the cross. Peacemakers have the reward of being called sons of God. It implies that you are like God. You're doing something that he also does. It also means that you are heirs of God. 
But if you're a peacemaker, it's not strange for the aggression of our world to turn itself in anger upon the peacemakers. And so verse 9 tells us, how good is life for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that how you've thought about the good life, being persecuted for righteousness? You know, when the apostles were arrested and then freed in Acts chapter 5, it says that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, for some of us, persecution for the sake of righteousness, that may seem like the furthest thing from us. For others, we may feel like, oh, that's my reality every day. So let's think about what this is and what this isn't saying. It is saying that the Christian life you're living should be outward and heartfelt enough for the world to know that you're different and to feel threatened by that. Not because you're doing anything actually threatening. No, you're, you're going out of your way to show them love, but this allegiance of yours that's so uncompromising, the world hates it. They don't hate you acting like a Christian in a general sense. Like, you can be good and generous and forgiving to them endlessly. That won't cause any offense. But if you say, <clears throat> no, I have to stand with righteousness on this issue or this choice, then be prepared because you are going to suffer for it. But there's an affirmation that comes into our hearts when we end up poorly treated like Jesus was. We don't seek that consequence, but it's inevitable and also, the opposite is not attractive. Luke 6.26 says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So when we don't stand with righteousness, we still are sending a message. But it's a message that's more like the false prophets. Popular messages don't divide but righteousness does divide and does cause offense. That being said, if you find yourself offending people everywhere you go, it may not be your convictions that seem offensive to them. It may actually be your character that is offensive. Like maybe you've known Christians who have experienced mild persecution because of their own foolishness or a tone of arrogance in how they communicate on social media because they're not really representing Christ, but rather some political or social cause in the name of Christ. For example, if you get slandered and shunned at work because you were encouraging people to vote against wokeism, that's not being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. But if you get slandered and shunned by your extended family because you were pleading with tears to your niece, not to try to destroy the gender that God assigned to her, but to believe that he does have a good purpose for her as she is, well, then what follows would be persecution for the sake of righteousness. It's a suffering that comes in response to your humble efforts to love and most truly protect others. It doesn't come in response to efforts of tribalism to protect yourself and what you value. I hope that distinction makes sense. We can talk about it more afterward if you like. So we've finished addressing the meaning of each beatitude, but if we stopped here, we would miss the big point. 
Remember the, the scene that's set for us in verse one. While the crowds could listen in, these words were for Jesus' disciples. And these words simply won't have the same meaning if they're not taken in with that goal of following Jesus. Like, for example, Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount twice a day for the last 40 years of his life. That's, that's amazing. I wish we would do that. And imagine if we internalize a Sermon on the Mount like that. But Gandhi died a Hindu. He used the words of Jesus to try to change the world in admirable ways, but he wasn't interested in how Jesus had already changed the world. What he missed is that the purpose of these statements was to drive us to Jesus himself. In the hit TV show, The Chosen, at the end of season two, the writers imagine Jesus telling Matthew that these beatitudes are a map. They're directions for where people should look to find me. If someone wants to find me, these are the groups they should look for. And I think that we can see the truth of that conclusion because in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, we are going to keep seeing Jesus among these groups. In chapter 8, he heals the servant of a Roman soldier who is very poor in spirit. He declares, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. In chapter 23, Jesus mourns over Jerusalem, and, and certainly we know he wept at the tomb of Lazarus as well. And meekness, the same word, is actually used in chapter 11 when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We had ample evidence in Jesus' temptation that he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And as we go along in Matthew, it'll be more than evident that Jesus himself is merciful. Jesus himself is pure in heart. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker, making peace between us and God by the blood of his cross. Jesus, more than anyone else, was persecuted for the sake of righteousness. The point of all of this is being with Jesus himself. I don't mean to flatten any of these beatitudes, but what they all have in common is that they show our orientation to him. And that's why verse 11 summarizes all of the opposition that those who, who live out the beatitudes could receive, the so-called weak ones of the world who, who find in Jesus all that they need for identity, all that they need for satisfaction, even in the midst of grief and fears and conflict. To these people, Jesus now stops speaking in the third person, and he turns to us and directly says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When you live this way, people will feel threatened. And I wish I could say that all opposition will come from outside the church, but often it's people who affiliate with Christ but who live for the world. Those are sometimes the ones who who most oppose those truly following Jesus, just like it was the outwardly pious ones in Jesus' day who were most deeply threatened by him. But whether it's side comments at work or friendships that, that grow cold or family members who reject you, or religious hypocrites who berate you, or even if it were to be beatings or stolen property or imprisonment or death as it is for many Christians in other parts of the world, even then, verse 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He draws a line from the Old Testament prophets straight to his own followers, which implies... He's also calling himself God. 
And as the one who is in control, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Joy and gladness. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what Jesus can give us in the midst of anything we're facing while clinging to him. In this introduction to his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us that the truly good life is walking in his footsteps. We see eight different ways that that path will make you look weak and threatening and nonsensical to this world, but if you are willing to take this low road, not just on Sundays, but in the midst of your hardest relationships and scariest choices, then you can be confident that you're going to be given everything you need to sustain you now because yours is the kingdom of heaven, and that that low road will soon lead out of the valley of the shadow of death and onto the mountain of fullness and delight. So this is what it means to belong to Christ's kingdom. So you, you look and you often feel like you're losing everything, but there you're finding Jesus and receiving fullness of life from his hands. Now all of these beatitudes call us to self-reflection, don't they? And maybe you've been traveling a hard road as a follower of Christ and you've wondered, is it even worth it to keep doing it God's way? Like, can't I just be realistic and, and kind of default to the way that people around me handle these situations? Well, if that's you this morning, then let Jesus' words give you fresh courage because there is great reward for living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Don't lose heart, keep going. Or have you been convicted this morning that one or more of these beatitudes simply isn't true of you? Don't resolve to work on developing that quality in yourself. It won't work. Humble yourself and come to the source of this lifestyle, the king himself. It's for him that you would be inclined to live this beautiful but seemingly impossible way. So you're not going to take on these qualities, authentically at least, until you want him and you want righteousness more desperately. So if you need a simple prayer of response today, pray like this. God, give me a greater hunger and thirst for righteousness. Pray for him to change your desires, not just your, your outward actions, desires that can only come from him. And you'll be, you can be confident that he's gonna answer that prayer. He says in his word, if you who give good gifts to your children, if you do that, then how much more will your heavenly Father grant the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I want to encourage you to ask him today. Ask him for more of himself. Ask him for his heart. Ask him for his desires that result in this lifestyle. Let's pray. Lord, in all this talk of desiring you, and in living as citizens of your kingdom, I want to pray for anyone here today who doesn't believe, who doesn't want to follow you, who um, just frankly thinks that this is a load of crap. Lord, I, I just ask that that person would be humbled, that they, you would open their eyes, that your word would speak to them, that they'd, they'd go home this week and read this again. And I pray that you would draw them by your Holy Spirit through the words of Christ to Christ himself. And Lord, throughout our time in the Sermon on the Mount, we pray that you would use this text to hit the pause button on our lives and to set our lives on a new path.
path that's marked with more love and peace and joy and beauty than we ever dreamed was possible. So heal us and tune us to live as citizens of your kingdom even now. We ask it in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.